Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're doing a deep dive on voluntary carbon credits. How are they generated? How are they verified? How are they financed? And what's the market for them? Also, what's their future? Will voluntary carbon credits form the basis of the global carbon market or will compliance markets? Our guest is Dina Reitman. Dina is the head of the commodities subsector at the international law firm DLA Piper, and she and her team are spearheading their carbon practice in the US. I also want to note at this time that I will be moderating some sessions at the upcoming Reuters events, North American Commodities Trading, on the 7th and 8th of June, and I hope you can join us there. As always, if you enjoyed the show, you can support it by leaving a positive review on the platform you're listening on. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Dina, thanks for joining. You're welcome. So we're talking about navigating the carbon market regulation and compliance, particularly focusing in on the, on the voluntary credit side of things. Before we dig into the details of the voluntary side, can you just frame up with for us, for our listeners, the difference between compliance markets and the voluntary market and how that dichotomy has been set up? I think that most people, when they think about the carbon markets, think about the compliance markets. The compliance markets stem from a law or a regulation that is set by the state or a government which says to an entity, okay, entity, I think you are emitting into the atmosphere too much carbon. Therefore, I am setting a limit on the amount of carbon that you can emit. And that limit over time decreases. And so that entity has to either change its practices or it needs to buy a carbon credit to offset the carbon that it is emitting into the atmosphere. And that is because that credits, it signifies an amount of carbon that was not emitted into the atmosphere. So in other words, if that entity buys that credit and retires it, or essentially puts it in its pocket, it is saying to the government, okay, that carbon has not been admitted into the atmosphere. And that is the compliance market, meaning this entity has signified to the government that I am in compliance with your law or rule with regards to the amount of carbon that can be admitted into the atmosphere. That is different than the voluntary carbon market, which is entities and persons voluntarily reducing the amount of carbon that they admit into the atmosphere. As you know, entities and persons are doing this voluntarily because the world today and persons living in the world today would like to see a change to the temperature and to our climate because we believe we have a responsibility to the earth. And so the voluntary carbon credit market is growing and is growing quite rapidly, even probably more so than the compliance market. 
And so these voluntary carbon credits are gaining traction and gaining value. Okay, so on the compliance side, you've got it's um, government-led. There's relatively, relatively few robust schemes around the world, obviously California, in Europe, with a pretty narrow categories around what constitutes a credit. On the voluntary side, which you point to, is where there's a lot of growth, and we'll come on to why that growth is there, but it ultimately sits outside of existing regulation. It might be in anticipation of coming regulation, but it is essentially organizations looking to prove their they've offset their carbon emissions in through other forms. So this is where I think the majority of this episode is going to be focused on and, and understanding what constitutes a voluntary carbon project, what that means for the creators, the investors, and what might be the future of them. So you've excellently set us up on the backdrop to this. What constitutes a, a project that could generate a carbon credit in this voluntary paradigm? That is the interesting and the exciting part of all of this. There are nonprofit organizations that verify or certify your projects. There are very popular organizations such as Gold Standard or Vera or the Climate Action Reserve that have what they call methodologies for verifying your processes or your projects. And these methodologies or these projects are a testing mechanism, if you will, a robust testing mechanism that verifies your process or your project through it's almost like a checklist, if you will. And a checklist is not the right word because it doesn't give it enough credit. It is something that will show the market that, okay, you have done your homework. You have done your um, due diligence project to show the world that if this project has generated an offset or an offset of carbon that is valuable and that it, this project actually does um, reduce carbon like it says it does. So let me back up just a little bit because this, there's a lot to unpack here. <laughs> Say, for example, you have an idea or a technology, right? Because a lot of people are really technologically savvy now in what they do and they're coming up with ideas to do normal things in different ways that can reduce carbon. And if you can do a normal thing in a different way that reduces carbon by the mathematical equation that is required to reduce a carbon credit, right? And each registry has that mathematical equation, right? That says, if you can reduce carbon by this much, that will generate one credit. And if you, you have that technology, and you can prove that up in a mathematical equation to that nonprofit following all their steps, having that verified through their third-party verifier, having that third-party verifier then verified to that, to that nonprofit that yes, this mathematical equation, I've done my 
third-party check, the mathematical equation checks out, that nonprofit then says, okay, for every hour that that technology runs, right, this is the amount of carbon that is not added into the environment. For that amount of carbon, this is the amount of credits that can be issued to that technology or that process. And that amount of credits is then given a specific serial number. That is how you keep track of the specific credit. It's very important to keep track of each credit. And that serial numbered credit is then uploaded into that nonprofit's registry, right? That registry then holds that project's credit. And each credit has a specific serial number. And that credit serial number can never be repeated. And that credit is unique. And that is the asset. So that is what it means to be a voluntary project or process that is verified by the nonprofit. And that is how you go from beginning to end to create these unique serialized carbon credits in the voluntary market. They have to end up in that registry. That's how you actually end up to be able to be traded or bought or sold or retired in that voluntary market. Right. Number of questions. Firstly, does every verifying nonprofit have its own registry or is there a common registry to all of them? They each have their own registry. However, there are ways if you are verified by some nonprofits that they will be recognized on other registries. So for example, some processes and not all if you're verified in one nonprofit, you can then transfer those verified credits to another registry if you find that they are more, there are more marketing opportunities on the other registry. Right. Okay. So, and I want to come on to how these become, these are now an asset and what they mean for financing and for markets and so forth. But going back to the, the very beginning, it's also quite a narrow category, as I understand it at the moment, that is available to be for for this type of credit right we're not talking about we're for the most part talking about carbon reduction as opposed to avoidance if for example you know impossible burger is not eligible for credit because it's merely carbon avoiding as opposed to carbon reducing there are all different types of new registries coming about right yeah there are offsets and then there are also reducing there are new types of credits out there called corks. So don't be surprised if there's a new market out there growing for corks. There already is one. It's just a matter of time. It is growing, it is coming, and it will be, it will be big soon. And it will be more for just, you know, offsetting activity. I guess we'll come on to this in the future, but that expansion of categories that can be eligible for credits it seems to me to be a huge opportunity as as more and more technologies, but more and more ways the world thinks about avoiding carbon comes online. Okay, so you've got right. this organization generating credits because that's part of their that's part of their business operations. It generates revenue for them. 
How do they monetize these credits? How do they link those to financing? Can we talk about sort of the other side of the credit, the investors and the financiers? Yes, that is a really good question and it is a good point because a lot of these new technologies or these companies that I'm seeing in my practice are new or their idea is new or they need money to make this project process work. And one of the things that we're seeing is a lot of project finance stemming from or centering around the value of the credit. And actually, we're beginning to see the terminology change because of something you mentioned earlier, the value around the emission reduction. I mean, we're a lot of, you know, we're, we're beginning to change our terminology. You're right. We shouldn't really be calling them credits because it's not always credits. Sometimes it's reduction. Sometimes it's, you know, it's offset. It's the value around the emission reduction that's created. And how does that happen? How are we seeing financing? We're seeing financing in a lot of ways. Mostly it's project financing. So we're seeing companies that are willing to invest money upfront money in these projects, these new technologies, in the promise of, right, in the future, you will be delivering to me the credit, the emission reduction, right? And why are they doing this? They're doing this because they know that in the future, the emission reduction will have value. And they either plan to market it themselves or they plan to retire them. Most of the time they plan to market them because a lot of the companies that are financing do not need to retire them themselves. Although you see a lot in the renewable energy space, a lot of the companies that are doing these types of project finances in the renewable energy credit space will often need to retire the credit themselves. So it's interesting because in project finance, credits on the registry it's all it's all new right like it's like literally just a serialized nothing like you don't even get a piece of paper so how do you make that collateral right like a lot of times when you do financing you have something that's collateral like something you would touch right when you give somebody money you know say say you're giving somebody money you know i'm giving you money to to generate cars you know, that's usually a project finance, right? Okay, well, you're going to give me either cars back, right? Or I'm going to be able to sell your cars if you don't, you know, or half of your cars if you don't make your cars, right? But the thing about credits, it's interesting because credits, as I mentioned earlier, are generated because they're tied to a project that has been verified right? They're not tied to the person giving the financing. So you have a little bit of a conundrum that you have to deal with, right? Because the verifier is giving the credits to that project, period. So the credits will be serialized and given to the project. When the registries were set up, there was really no thought yet or rules written yet for this idea that somebody was going to be giving money to a project and somebody was going to have to take collateral over this thing, this serialized thing. 
And so we're now beginning to have to figure out how you work within the registries and within the rules to take collateral over these serialized credits. And you're beginning to see very creative ways, and the rules are now beginning to change in the registries for sure, right? Like you have to, the world has to change. You know, you're beginning to see now like how credits now have what they call project proponents and the project proponents have to be able to allow there to be some sort of authorization or something that says, okay, you know, it's not just me. I have this, you know, if I'm not paying my bills, I have to, this financier has to be able to step in and take over these credits, right? They have to be able to step into the registry and take these, right? You're beginning to see that now, but all this is all very, very, very interesting, right? Because it's a new type of financing and there's all sorts of things that you have to think about within the finance world and this type of project financing, because unlike project financing with cars, or maybe it is the same thing as project financing with cars, there's all sorts of rules. Well, there's a lot of case history, right? To essentially tie title to the, who owns the cars at any given point. Whereas a lot of this stuff is yeah. so new, I assume that you just, and it was never built into the registries when, when they were created. You got it, right? And so there's a lot of things we're trying to fi we, we figure out as we go, right? And we're, and we're figuring them out as we go and we have to structure them along the way. And it takes, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of thought process because the whole point is to reduce carbon in the atmosphere. And the whole point is, is that whoever is operating that project doesn't all of a sudden begin to operate that project and cut corners. Mm. So like when you're building a car, if you find a way to be more efficient, right? Like, so say, for example, you're building a car and you're financing the building of a car and you say, oh, I found a place where I can buy steel. It's cheaper, right? Like usually as the financer of that, you're like, done. You go and you buy that steel that's cheaper. You're making me more money. But when you're financing the creation of a credit. All the conditions have to be the same. Because otherwise, it no longer meets. How even if they've improved things, it no longer meets that checkbox. That's right. You will lose your verification, and you will lose my investment. So yeah. when we're creating the the documentation over this type of financing, it can't be okay. Project operator, you go do your thing and make make me money. It has to be. Uh, it's 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 very different type of project financing. It has to be if you do not follow the standards, the rules, and you in any way deteriorate my credit, there's there's ramification. So it's very, it's like, it's different. Which is very tough, right? Because, okay, I get it. I get that with a technology, right? You've got a carbon capture technology, but a lot of these voluntary credits are, are based on biological systems and the state of the forest that you're maintaining might be degraded through forest fires or whatever, right? So there's, you know, there's a lot of risk in there just who are these investors at the moment is it traditional banks or are we seeing a lot of the i mean i know from from our work you know you've got trading houses in the commodity space looking to invest in these and it's very fascinating and we'll come on to it why they're for the most part holding on to these credits as opposed to selling them to people who then need to sort of close them down to meet their own emissions goals so i'm seeing all over the board people investing believe it or not there are companies that are literally set up that are setting up just to buy credits because they see like they're reading the tea leaves, you know, 
and they see that the value is going to go up and this is all they're set up for private equity type. I also see funds being set up. I'm telling you in the renewable energy space, like the renewable energy credit, you see companies that actually need to retire credits. But you know what I also see is you see a lot of companies that you wouldn't think. So there we have, and I obviously can't say, but we have a lot of so um, consumer companies, large, large consumer companies that face the market. So companies, think about companies that have a very high profile. They're going to be hitting the market soon saying, all right, well, you guys spoke and we listened. You want us to be net zero? Well, guess what? This past year, we spent the year credits and investing in credits. And this is how they're doing it. They're literally setting up finances and financing projects. And they will eventually in a year or so have themselves buckets and buckets of credits that they will either trade, sell, or retire. I understand sort of the thesis, right? You, the idea, the overall, the world expense expects carbon to become more expensive. And, you know, I think there is now a groundswell of understanding across the planet about the impact of carbon dioxide and is linked to climate change and how significant and severe that is already. At some point, though, I mean, this, what fascinates me about this is it all ultimately is voluntary. You've obviously got a lot of organizations investing in projects that are generating these credits and holding on to those credits in, in this in as a form of investment because they themselves are an asset class and their belief is they are appreciating. I might be jumping ahead here, but is there the anticipation that at some point these credits will become compliance driven, i.e. government mandates will come in that say that will, will give these things an actual value beyond the uh, a voluntary market or is or is this how are these companies betting on the idea that voluntary credits will ultimately drive the carbon marketplace from now and forever yes I, I mean i guess that depends on your politics i think that some people believe that the you know the government's going to come in and make it all compliance and i think some people believe that this is going to be a global voluntary market right now this looks like the global voluntary market is the place to be. And it's really just taking off like gangbusters. If we can get a global voluntary market, like right now, as we started out, there are different registries um, all over. And each registry has its own processes for verification. And each registry has different methodologies that they will verify so if we can get that to be global like a global market i mean i just think the sky is the limit there voluntarily and right Mm. now the sky is the limit right if you're that if you're that person that has that cool technology and you just didn't even have to be that cool i mean think about it if you got a stove that is energy efficient (laughs) and you can create a carbon credit from it, and you can go find a methodology somewhere, you can use it. Because once that methodology is made public, it's for everybody to use. That's how they work. They are a nonprofit. 
And what's your facility? So I want to get in a little bit of the complexity here. What is your facility at the moment to say, I've come up with this technology. It's as yet doesn't fit within any of your methodologies, but I can prove that it's it's carbon avoiding, carbon reducing. Are organizations going to these nonprofits, these verifiers, and lobbying to have their technology taken within the methodology or a new subcategory created? How How is that mechanism working? Yes. So it's funny that you use the word lobbying. Yes. It's sort of like lobbying, but not really. They want your business within within reason. I mean, it is a very long process and we have multiple clients that we help do this from farmers to, believe it or not, traditional oil and gas folks. It is a very long process. It requires lawyers, scientists, chemists sometimes, economists, mathematicians, because really in the end it comes down to mathematical equation and, and, and it requires lawyers and we, we help because the paperwork is extensive and a lot of times it is new technology. So we have to have patent lawyers involved um, because your patents need to remain protected throughout the process, which we make sure that they do remain protected. But these registries, they, they're in the business to help the economy and help the globe, right? So if you have a new technology process project, they want you to come to them. Is the process long? Yeah. Is there a lot of paperwork? Yeah. But do they help you through it? Absolutely. Will we help you through it? Absolutely. Step by step, there's a, Every registry, every verifier has handbooks and outlines and rules and step-by-step guidance and they will get on the phone with you and they will talk you through and they will help you and it's a process for sure. But once you get it up there, you've also done and it's approved and it becomes a approved methodology or an approved process. You've also then helped not only yourself, but you've also helped Everybody, because once it's approved, then somebody else can use it to get a credit using that process, right? So you're then also helping the world and the globe. It's completely and totally worth the time and effort. So what about, again, my naivety around this, how does pricing work? How, how is one credit valued versus another? Can you help us understand that framework a little? Oh, yeah, no, it's just like any other commodity. Um, there's benchmarks and there are curves there's a opus curve is online that you can see the value of these carbon credits trading and they're broken down by like what category they're in just final piece on this segment the moment though it is an incredibly fragmented space not only by the different verifiers and and methodologies out there but also Every jurisdiction has its own requirements, legal code around financing, royalty agreements, you know, all of these pieces. I mean, what granularity is there that, you know, is every state, for example, in the US, if you've got different rules, you know, how complex is this right now? So this is pretty complex right now. And it's complex because of what you mentioned. It's complex because of the regulation around commodities really because carbon credits in the United States versus carbon credits 
regulation in Europe or the UK, for example, it's just, they're just regulated different. They're regulated differently. So that is definitely a complexity for sure. You hit on something. So you've got obviously complexity around how these carbon credits are generated in different jurisdictions. What about how that then interplays into the different financing and banking laws in, in re- on a regional basis and a, and a country basis? That is a great question. So this is another thing we see and another reason why this is a complex area to practice law at the moment. So in the United States, for example, the carbon credit is regulated in the commodities regulations in the United States, meaning it's regulated under the Commodity Exchange Act as it's been modified by Dodd-Frank. So in the United States, if you are going to be buying and selling carbon credits, your first question needs to be to yourself, okay, well, I'm buying and selling a carbon credit. Am I physically taking delivery of this carbon credit? Which is kind of an odd question you're asking yourself to begin with because there is no physical anything as we've mentioned a thousand times on this podcast, because it's literally a serialized nothing. It's like a serialized number that's, you know, transferred between accounts. But in the United States, that's the regulation you have to deal with, right? Because in the States, the carbon credit is considered a commodity. And in the United States, that's the regulatory regime we're under. We're under Dodd-Frank. And if and in, in if you're in Dodd-Frank, you're either a swap or you're not. And to simplify things, you know, you're a swap if you're not taking physical delivery. So in the States, if you're a swap, you have a bunch of regulatory requirements that you have to fulfill. And if you're not a swap, then you don't, right? So, you know, when, when I'm dealing with a purchase and sale agreement for a carbon credit, which, you know, you began to ask me about, you know, the, you know, how do you price carbon credit, which is what you just asked me right before this. Because that's how you do it, you know. If you if you're going to buy and sell the credit, you get you enter into a purchase and purchase and sale agreement. And in the purchase and sale agreement, in the states, you know, if someone says, "Okay, well, I'll give you a dollar," in the states, you have to say, "Okay, well, then you have to give me the credit." Because if you don't, then you have to ask yourself, "Well, shoot, is this a swap or not?" Very, very different if you're in Europe or if you're in the UK. Because if you're in Europe or if you're in the UK, and obviously, I'm not a European lawyer or a UK lawyer, right? The question is, is this a derivative or is this not a derivative? And that's because in the European regime or in the UK, these types of transactions fall under their banking laws. And what I find at DLA Piper is I have a lot of my colleagues who have European clients or clients in the UK who will um, not know that if they're dealing in the United States that they have to ask a commodities lawyer and they'll immediately ask a banking lawyer this question. The banking lawyers don't know, right? Just like I wouldn't know that if I had a European lawyer that I would have to ask a banking lawyer, right? I would immediately try to ask a a, a commodities lawyer. And the funny thing is, is if you're in Canada, they don't have any regulation at all over this type of credit. (laughs) So, So that is another layer of complexity is as you move through what we were talking about, right, Paul? Like, okay, so we went from the verification, then we went to, you know, the actual purchase and selling. And when you get to the purchase and selling, then you get to the regulation on the purchase and selling. And that's different all over the world. So it just, it's, um, 
it's a pretty interesting place and space to be practicing law for sure. Okay. So you've done a wonderful job. I know a lot more than when we started this of explaining the the, the nature of these projects and, and the financing of them. Also highlighting the complexity right now, ultimately because you've got so fragmented in how in the treatments for these credits and projects, as well as the the multiplication of the number of verifiers out there and methodologies and so forth. Taking as our premise that these things won't plummet in value or, or everything won't turn to a compliance market or a tax and, and voluntary markets are here to stay, which obviously people are making a big bets on. What do you see in the future? Will we see a necessary, what's the word I'm looking for? Will we, will we see a necessary standardization across the globe, or at least in the West, verifiers of definitions and of treatments from a legal and financing standpoint? I know people are trying to do it. There is a task force, a global task force of industry participants that are working towards standardizing definitions and standardizing rules across the globe. Is the task force for the globalization of the carbon markets? So yes, we will see it in our lifetime. And the ISDA working group also is working towards standardization of documentation, which is another thing that we would um, probably see coming soon. Again, right now, like I mentioned, we're all figuring out how to draft purchase and sale agreements, and that will be a standardization that would probably be welcomed by everyone across the globe. And I know in your role more broadly as a commodities lawyer, you've spent a lot of time on distributed ledgers on blockchain. This does seem ripe on the face of it, that you've got these serial numbers, and ultimately, they're going to start changing hands quite rapidly, or the credits tied to them are going to change hands quite rapidly. And the key, one of the key issues you've highlighted is how do we verify title to those credits? Do you see a role for blockchain making that a more efficient market globally and better independent verification of who actually holds title of those credits at any given point? I do. And if we could make this a blockchain application, we could also make this a better situation for those that are willing to finance um, these projects. Because one of the issues, obviously, for the party that's willing to finance is the chain of title, right? The chain of title, the worry and concern and the risk that the title will be lost to the credit as the credit is moving from the registry to the project proponent, right? So that is a good point. It is definitely a good application and it would be perfect for that type of control. Yes, well, uh, gauntlet thrown down. Well, it's been a a really interesting discussion. I really appreciate both your patience with me and uh, and, and taking us through step by step. You know, it, it. I think as you have rightly highlighted, this is an area of real activity, real interest, both from investors as well as corporates who are looking to to meet their customers' net zero demands over the next couple of years. And and clearly, you're at the. Uh, the spear tip, so to speak, of, uh, of what's going on. So um, thank you. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.